0: The following speaker share from Claudia B. was recorded on January 23rd, 2021. But when I came into ACA, the words didn't come. They simply weren't there. I, if for weeks into several months in my first ACA meetings, I, and I'll share with you in just a moment about how I actually started those meetings in Orange County and um, facilitated so much of that. And yet on a personal level, the voice, it just couldn't come. And really what I understand now is that's really a trauma response. It was really a freeze response. But one of the things, you know, that we tell people that's really true is you just keep coming back. And I knew that you just kept coming back. And I didn't have any shame about that. Just being there surrounded by so many other people that you knew that we all knew, you know, the pain was simply, it was just simply too painful. Now that was over, God, I couldn't believe this when I thought about it tonight. That was over 40 years ago. You know, what ACA gave me over the years is it gave me a voice, and it gave me a voice to speak my truth, my reality, and to be able to trust in myself. It gave me the opportunity to, in essence, put my past behind me, to let go of shame based beliefs, and to recognize my character defects. And character defects. Certainly, I think for adult children are often beliefs and behaviors that were truly survival skills for us in our growing up years. But as we move into adult life, they begin to cause a lot of problems in how we live our lives. And a part of ACA is learning to take responsibility for what it is that goes on in my life today. And I think what ACA does for many, and I certainly know it does for me, is it gave me a choice about how it is I live my life. And what I mean by that is a choice versus to continue to live a script. And in most people's cases, and certainly mine, a generational family script. As I said, I grew up in the Pacific Northwest in this small logging town where my, I'm just watching Valerie there. Hi, Valerie. <laughs> um, I grew up in, in this small little logging town my parents owned the only tavern. My story, so oftentimes, I think that it begins with my father who, as a very young man, he grew up in Appalachia. And his family, his brothers, bought him a one-way ticket from the East Coast to the West Coast because he had a brother getting out of the Navy on one of the cities in Washington that was a Navy Yard at that time. My dad doesn't come from a history of alcoholism. He came from Appalachia, abject poverty, mother died when he was an infant and you know certainly had a lot of adverse childhood experiences. But they bought him this one-way ticket because he was in so much trouble with his drinking and his so-called womanizing that we would probably today think of as sex addiction. And, And as he liked women, it wouldn't take him too long to find my mother, a wonderful adult child who grew up in a home with compulsive gambling, a lot of alcoholism, a lot of compulsive overeating. And really that's where the generational addiction took place in terms of my family history. You know, what I understood about my dad, I didn't know at that time, I wasn't even here, but what I understood in those early years is he was very industrious. He was in his early stages of his addiction, and he also really loved the outdoors, and that outdoors led him to do a lot of backpacking, and he and one of his young buddy and alcoholic friends, they would make their way up into the mountains for several days on backpacking trips. And one of their rituals was when they would come out of the mountain, they would stop at a a local tavern before they made it home about an hour and a half away. And one day the tavern was for sale. So these two men, they left their really solid jobs and picked up their families. And we went to this little tiny town. And when I think about the memories at that time in my life, addiction was just a way of life for us. Nothing seemed bad. It was just, you know, people drank a lot and people around us drank a lot. I remember a lot of positive things. I remember going fishing with my dad. I remember being in the car and singing with my dad. Now we were always going to a bar and we always had a half case or a full case of beer in a little rowboat as we went fishing. But I felt an attachment and there was something positive for me. But one particularly fateful day is my dad got angry about something, he was in the tavern that we owned and he uh, headed out in his car and somebody had stole his half case of beer. And then he got more angry and he ended up in a car accident just minutes later. And he was seriously injured. What was most faithful about that day wasn't his injury. It was the fact that that's when my mother went to work. And the day my mother went to work is also the day that she never came home. And what that left was three little kids in essence to raise ourselves. You know, when I when I give a talk, it's always a little hard for me. It's not some of my favorite things to do when I talk about myself personally or my story, because, you know, we always like a speaker who, you know, can generate a whole lot of laughter. And the truth is, my story, it, um, it isn't you know, there, there wasn't a lot of laughter. There was there were those fun times. And even in the craziness, they weren't even particularly funny. You know, finding humor and pain, it just wasn't an option for me. We had too much pain and it was way too uh, chronic for us. So as I said, there were three little kids pretty much raising ourselves with me in the lead. As Life seemed okay for a while. Then we had this infamous accident. And the way life really was is my dad drank and my mother worked. And we didn't have any regular routine to our life. And but it's probably easier to describe my growing up years when I think about all the feelings. The feeling is the fear of the, fe- the fear that my dad wouldn't come home, that he'd take off because he'd take off in the car and he'd be gone for hours and sometimes days. Is he ever going to come home? And the fear that in that kind of rageful drinking, he was going to die in a car accident. The fear that he was going to die just from literally drinking too much. And then I also had this great fear that my brother was going to die because he had a terminal illness and he would die from that. I had the fear that on any given day, he'd get a cold, he'd get the measles and it would be over. The fear that my mom couldn't come home from work because my dad wouldn't show up to relieve her. That he might kill one of us because he ultimately became very violent and threatened to kill. That he would make a scene and he would make scenes everywhere in the community. And then the fear that my mom would try and intervene and heaven help should she intervene things are just going to get worse and if you you know and just all the sadness that comes with living life like that and then all those embarrassing moments and you know when you're raised with addiction and other kinds of dysfunction sometimes it seems like our parents go out of their way to create embarrassing incidents You know, I'm fifth grade and I'm in a play, a Christmas play at school. And my father has to jump up on the stage and take the microphone away. So he gets the attention and, you know, he thinks it's funny. I mean, we just had one scene after another like that. And then as an adult child, you know, the guilt, the guilt that we can't do enough to make it stop, even though we don't know what it is, that I'm not powerful enough to make a difference. And then the confusion, because I don't understand what it is that's going on. But what I do want you to notice that for me, there was no anger. There was already too much anger in this house. And the only person allowed to be angry in this house was my father. Maybe a saving grace for me, though, was I had an internal boundary. I had an internal boundary that somehow, heaven help, I knew that I wasn't responsible for the craziness. And I knew it was connected to my dad. I didn't know what had happened to my dad, but I also felt something had happened to him. So... I learned what I call in my writing the don't feel rule at a very young age. Don't tell anybody what it is you're feeling. And I learned how to take charge at a young age. I became the parent to myself, the parent to my brothers and sister, my brother and sister. And then I really became mom's partner. And I'd go every day to the tavern and I, in essence, get marching orders as to what it is she needed me to do to just keep the household going in terms of what food you take out of the freezer? Did I have to go to the grocery store? Just what did she need from me? For me, growing up, school was an answer. One, it was a place of relief. Um, you know, I just wasn't subject to the stress and the trauma that was taking place in the house. For me, I created my own structure. I knew what day of the week I was gonna get certain things done, such as the laundry. And Back then we did ironing. Some of you will identify with that. Most of you probably won't. I knew when I was changing the linens on the beds. Um, but every day of the week, I had an outline for what it is I need to accomplish both at home and at school. I was that placating kind of child at the same time where my job, I took it upon myself that my job was to take the pain out of the home I knew that my father was in pain. I think he was as frightened as I was. So I did whatever it is I could to give my father some esteem, um, to get positive attention from him so he could feel good about himself. And I did that a lot with a lot of leadership capacity. As I said, I learned how to take charge and that gave me a lot of leadership uh, skills. I did what I could to take the embarrassment out of the home. You know, I was willing to dance on the rooftop if that's what I needed to do so my sister wasn't embarrassed, so that my brother wasn't embarrassed. I was a very warm, compassionate child. You know, I would make up for the fact my father never bought my mom a Christmas present. And I'd make up for that by usually making a whole lot of extra Christmas presents for my mom. My brother and his illness, that was really is a significant factor in my growing up years as, as the addiction in the home. And uh, when the other kids in school began to forget about him because he had to leave school when he was in fifth grade, um, little things like on Valentine's Day, I make up my own Valentine's to give to him. So he thought he was getting them from his other friends. I had a lot of flexibility. I had to be really flexible in this particular family in order to survive. And, you know, one of the things that happens for all of us is that we garner a lot of strengths, you know, that ability to take charge, that having to be flexible at times, that compassion. And in our recovery, we don't have to give up our strengths. We may have to give up self-defeating beliefs. We may certainly have to give up certain kinds of behaviors, but it's often what we didn't get to learn that really gets in the way of what goes on in our life. I learned, as many of us do, I learned what's called the high, I'm looking at my watch here. I learned a high tolerance for inappropriate behavior. I'm going to share with you a story just because I'm a little bit known for the story and some of you are very new to me. So, as I said, my parents owned a tavern and it's out in the middle of nowhere, way back when, now we're in the 1960s. And there isn't a lot to do in this small town when you're 15 years of age, unless you go out and get drunk with your friends. And I was too scared to do that because of my father's anger. Or you stayed home and you watched television. So on this given night, I'm home 15. My brother's 16. My little sister is 11. But I have a boyfriend there. And we're all busy watching the television set. And then we look out the the big glass windows in our house that's adjacent to the tavern. And we're watching the tavern. Because the tavern is the most interesting place in town. On Saturday nights, that's where everybody goes. And this is, I always say, this is really good if you're wanting to develop social work assessment skills. Because you get to watch who goes into the tavern. And then you get to watch people come out of the tavern. And then you get to notice who they come out of the tavern with that they didn't go into the tavern with. Which is usually somebody else's husband or wife. And then they go to their cars. And so 30 miles in the dark down country roads to another bar. So they just go to their cars and then they either uh, fight with each other, they get sexual with each other, um, or uh, they just drink what they can't drink in the home or in the bar. So anyway, we sit with the little noses pressed against the window and then we're looking at the tavern, noses pressed against the window, uh, looking at the tavern the whole time, back to the TV, back to the TV. When the front door of the house flies open, a man, stranger, I've never seen him before in my life, enters the living room and he says to the four of us kids, do you have a can of deodorant? Well, I just quickly jumped up and I ran to this bathroom to get this man his can of deodorant. I came back in, I handed it to him and in the middle of our living room, he sprayed himself. Well, anyway, he put the can back down on the coffee table and then he walks out the front door. So, I, my brother and sister, we turned around, just finished watching our television show. But the boyfriend, he isn't used to something like this. And he's looking at the front door. He's looking at the front door. He's looking at me. It took him about 30, 40 seconds. And he finally said, Claude, 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 who was that man? Well, when you're raised in family like this, sometimes you have to change your reality over 20 or 30 seconds. And I looked at my boyfriend. and I didn't know what he was talking about. I said, what man? Well, when you're not raised in a home like this, you don't know how to change your reality every 20 or 30 seconds. He said that man that was just here that wanted that can of deodorant and he gets all agitated. And with my 15 years of charm that I had garnered from my father, who had been very charming in his early years of his alcoholism, I looked at my boyfriend and I calmly said, and what is it to you? And it's one of those things where you either teach them how to shut up or they need to go. And in this case, he learned how to shut up. High tolerance for inappropriate behavior. For me, I pushed to be the best with fear and shame nipping at the seat of my pants. There was a time when my dad built a house and he had enough financial resources to get a loan and to build the house. And after the house was built, he came in with big dump trucks loaded full of dirt. Came in one day and he said, Claude, I want you to get out there with your brother and your sister and get some rakes and shovels and rake that dirt down for me. So with my father, you didn't challenge him at all. So I quickly jumped up and I got some rakes and shovels and I got my little sister and then I got my brother out there in a wheelchair. Now, I'm not talking about little mounds of dirt. I'm talking about dump truck mounds of dirt. And. We shoveled and we raked and we shoveled and we raked. And at various times throughout the day, my father would come over and he'd bring from the tavern. He'd be watching me as we lived right next to the tavern. And he'd bring some of his drinking friends over with him. And then he would just shame me and then laugh at me in this humiliating tone. And then tell me, you know, I wasn't doing this job good enough and what was wrong with me. And, you know, every time he did that, I have to tell you, I just worked harder. I just worked harder and I shoveled harder. But, you know, the reality was, no matter what I did, it wasn't going to be good enough because it wasn't even humanly possible what it was he was asking of me. And, you know, that's where a lot of perfectionism for me came from, that the expectations were unrealistic, but I kept trying to prove, I kept trying to seek that approval. No matter, you know, if I just pushed harder, maybe I could do what he asked of me and he would be okay and I would be okay. But the reality is it wasn't never, it wasn't ever good enough because it wasn't about me. It was about his need for control, his need for tyranny, his unrealistic expectations. So I learned a lot of high tolerance for inappropriate behavior, and I learned a lot of perfectionism. I learned to lie because that's the only way that you could get through, get some normal things in life. I learned to rationalize. My mother was really good at rationalizing and minimizing. You know, we always say the addict has denial, but so do we, the children of and the partners of. We minimize, we discount, we rationalize, we pretend things are different than how they really are. And then we take that with us into our adult life. But when I say my mother was a great rationalizer, I'll never forget the day. Now my mother didn't smile hard ever in my growing up here. She didn't have a lot to smile about. And one day my father did something just crazy. I don't even know what it is anymore. And, and my mother looked at me and she got the smile on her face. And I just like perked up. She, my mother had a smile on her face and she said, Claudia, I know why your dad behaves like he does. And I thought, oh my gosh. She said, I know why he behaves the way he does. And I thought, okay, I'm ready for this. And she said, your dad has a brain tumor. Yeah, he has a brain tumor. And he wants us to hate him before he dies. And that's why he does what he does. And then she got this glorious smile on her face, like she finally had an answer for why we live the way we lived. And I have to tell you, I didn't believe it for a moment, but who was I to take away this just moment of peace that my mother had in her mind? Just For just a second, she thought she had an answer for why it is we lived the way we did. Well, my brother would die. I was just shy of 16. And uh, I thought my mom would leave and she didn't. As a teenager, I straddled two worlds. I straddled the world of day and night and weekday and weeknight. When I say the world of day and weekday at school, I could be a class president and I could be head of the debate team, just in a small little town, but it was a big deal. You know, I could be president of the band, of the class, the homecoming queen, whatever. But at night, I'd go home and I'd cry myself to sleep every night. Every night, three years, I did that. At night, there were times I'd crawl across the living room floor because we didn't know if my dad was gonna shoot the windows out of the house and we didn't wanna get shocked. There were times where my dad would be passed out and uh, you know, you put the stom- your hand on the stomach to see if he's dead or alive. By the time my late teenage years, he'd become very sexually preoccupied with me. And I got, so I took a knife to bed because I felt I would need to protect myself. Um, and, you know, it was one of those times where this man was no longer my dad. Somehow I knew it was like he was possessed. And I knew that if he crossed that boundary, because the one thing I always knew about my dad is I knew he loved me. I knew he loved me. My dad was the one in my family that I got appropriate affectionate from. He was the one who could say, I love you, Claude. they call me Claude. And, um, but not my mother, she she couldn't say those things. And she was so busy keeping a roof over her head and running a tavern and, you know, attending to a dying son. So, but the fact that he was becoming sexually preoccupied and coming into my bedroom at night in his underclothes and trying to have conversations with me, that were sexually graphic. I really felt that I was in jeopardy and I decided that if he ever touched me, I would knife him. And uh, I would literally pra- practice disassociating every positive feeling I ever had about him. Um, so that if that's what I had to do, I would do that. Um, I didn't ever have to do that. I had two goals as a kid. I don't know what your goals were, but my goal was you don't get pregnant and you gotta get out of town. I really had one goal and that was to get out of town. And the only way I was gonna get out of town was to not get pregnant. And my ticket to stay out of town was to get an education. Fear and sadness propelled me. My job in essence was to look good. It was to be happy, to be grateful for what I had. And I was grateful. I mean, I had a lot of things a lot of other kids didn't have. I had food and we lived in a poor, lower working class community. Some people didn't have the food that we had. I was taught I had to be grateful for two parents. And I was grateful that I had two parents. And I was grateful for, you know, whatever little good times that we had. I managed to graduate and I went on to school and that was a gift from my father. He, from the time I was a little kid, he told me that I'd go on and I'd get a college education because he came from Appalachia and he valued education so much. And I did. Um, And as I said, probably one of the ways that I managed to do that was by not getting pregnant. I was driven and survivorship was the name of the game. I was running. School gave me a direction, it gave me a goal. I was very self-reliant. Now, being self-reliant, rigidly self-reliant, also means you don't trust. I learned that I was the only one that I could really trust. But I also learned in this process, I learned purpose and meaning was brought to me in the helping of others. I was a really good caretaker. I learned that nobody else was going to take care of me and that uh, I needed to be self-sufficient. But in this process, I did have a boyfriend. I want you to know I had a boyfriend and he was a high school sweetheart. And I gotta tell you, I loved him. And the reason I think I really loved him is he was the very first person who ever said to me, Claudia, there is something really wrong with your dad here. Nobody ever said that. It would be a long time before anybody else ever said that. How could I not fall in love with this kid, this 15, 16 year old young boy? I fell in love and we married my junior year in high school in college. And, you know, we married not just because he was the first to to really name reality for what it was, but we also married because I did not know how to say no, and I did not want to hurt his feelings. And the day I got married, as I walked down that aisle, my hand holding my stepdad who was giving me away, I got up there in front of the minister and in front of uh, my boyfriend, and I couldn't say a word. I knew that I didn't want to be getting married and I didn't know how to get out. of it. And I said nothing and pretty soon somebody pronounced that I was married. So now I was married and it didn't take very long for the two of us, at least for me to begin to drown. At At home in those next couple of years, he was smoking pot on a daily basis. I didn't see that as a problem, by the way. You just smoke pot on a daily basis. I didn't, but he did. Uh, but he wasn't working, and there were lots of reasons why I couldn't seem to get a job. And then one day I had a week off. Don't do that to somebody who's originally self-sufficient and always keeping really busy. Suddenly I had a week off, and, and there were all kinds of feelings that began. And after that end of my having a week off work, and I was supporting the two of us, and I was paying our school loans back, I woke him up and I said, I'm going. And he said, where are you going? Like I'm going to the grocery store. Cause that's what it sounded like. And I just said, I'm going there was, you know, if you'd asked me how my marriage was, I would have told you it was just fine. It was fine. You know, I loved him. We had no conflict. We had no disagreement. That's because I couldn't do conflict. I couldn't negotiate. I couldn't disagree. I was far too afraid of anger, anger. Yeah. I'll never figure one time. Uh, he got angry with me and I'm trying to respectfully him. say his first name. And, uh, And he got angry and he just raised his voice. It just raised his voice. He wasn't saying anything inappropriate, but he he had that energy of anger. And I backed away and I started to clutch my throat because my dad used to choke. And he stopped and he said, oh, Claude, Claude, I'm not going to hurt you. And he said, I'm not your dad. And that was one of the few times I can ever remember any anger. Um, And obviously, I, I just couldn't do anger. But I saw myself repeating 26 years of my mother physically um, working with my dad, not working. And I just and then I saw the pot smoking on a daily basis and the aim motivation. And I didn't I didn't know what to do other than run. And so, as I said, I got up one day and just simply ran. I went on to graduate school. It was very free in time for me at that time. I want you to know I did not go to Al-Anon. I did not know a thing about Al-Anon. There was no ACA at that time. But I took a class on addiction, and I learned about blackouts, and I learned about personality changes. And in that moment, I understood what had happened in my life. Now, nobody talked about children of alcoholics. Nobody talked about ACA. That hadn't existed at that point. But ultimately, that led me to take my first job. Well, it's my second professional job. My first job was in residential treatment settings with teenage girls, angry teenage girls. And I got to tell you, I loved it. And I think I loved it because they had something I didn't have, and that was anger. I always felt that angry kids are closer to the truth than those of us who have the ability to look good. But now I took my job after graduate school. I took it in an addiction treatment program. And I didn't have a lot of thought as to why I was taking it in an addiction treatment program. But there, as a non-addicted person and as a social worker, they asked me to develop a family program. As an adult child, I didn't ask any questions and I made assumptions. And I thought families meant kids. So we invited, I invited partners in and I invited kids in. Some of those kids were young, some were teenagers, but a lot of them were of adult age. And sitting in front of me, I saw the progression. And as I invited the partners in, I saw those kids progressing into that. And as I and as I worked with the addicted person, I identified with the addicted person emotionally, though I didn't have you know the addiction to the substance. And that was the beginning of an incredible career for me. Now, at the same time, I want you to know, being this very responsible adult child, I was sending these partners to Al-Anon so I thought the least I can do is go to Al-Anon and find out you know what that's about not just refer them to Al-Anon so I did that and I have to tell you the first meeting I ever walked into was the first time in my life I ever felt at home and what I mean by that is safe I didn't identify with a lot of the people because I wasn't the partner of but there was a sense of safety and it was very spiritual and somehow that i knew i belonged a funny thing happened in the very first one or two meetings people give you their phone numbers well i'm an adult child and a very polite one so i obviously took their phone numbers for the life of me i didn't know what i would do with their phone numbers i didn't need any help and i certainly didn't need their help But I kept going back to that meeting, well, for a period of time when I lived in that area. And then I moved on to another area. But by then, my work with children and seeing the progression into the adult child's life was happening. And I had met a person who was in recovery, was doing some service work in my program. And when I was telling him about my work, he said, you need to talk about this. You need to write about it because nobody knows. And so I did that. I began to talk about it, and I began to write about it. And very early in my writing, I was taking some of what I was writing up to a copy shop. And they had copy shops in those days more than they do now. And there was a woman who said to me, I'm this. I am everything that you were writing. And I think I was writing. It will never happen to me at that time. And right about then, ACA had started in New York and Jack, a guy named Jack E had made his way to Los Angeles and somebody had sent me uh, the laundry list at that time. And so I said to this woman, we need to have one of these groups in Orange County. And this was in Laguna Beach for those of you from California. And uh, so we had our first um, ACA meeting at Coast Hospital back in the early 1980s. And four of us, I asked this woman if she would do it with me. And I asked two other people that I knew. I said, I'll lead the first meeting, but one of you has to take over after that. And we will keep inviting people until we have a group. And, and that's how um, I really first got directly involved in ACA myself. It's always been a bit of a, uh, a fine line for me because ACA needed to be for my own personal growth it needed to be for my own recovery. And yet by then I'm out speaking and, and having people really respond to what it is I'm saying about children of and adult children and the delayed responses you often see for adult children and, and you know all the things that we now know. And so it was really important for me that I not take necessarily a leadership role any further in this capacity. I wanna say that recovery for me has, far more been emotional and spiritual, meaning that I didn't have a trail. I came to it so young, I didn't have as much of a trail of poor decisions behind me. I didn't have any active addictions behind me. I certainly had that low-grade depression called dysthymia, and I had a whole host of character defects that were starting to interfere with aspects of my life and were gonna interfere even greater. Control, trust, and dependency were key issues for me. And it was through the validation of ACA that I learned how to let go of needing to be in control. External control, the manipulation of people, places, and things that I really don't have to do that. But for years, I had to do it because it brought me safety. Internal control, don't show anybody, you know, don't tell anybody what you need or don't tell them about your feelings. I needed to let go of that kind of rigidity. And with that came the beginning of trusting in others. To have faith and a power outside of myself. Well, first, let me tell you that faith and control don't peacefully coexist. You can't let go of that control unless there's some faith entering at the same amount of time. From the moment I walked into ACA, I felt like I didn't have to carry the burden of the world anymore. I learned to value my needs. You know, I always say that I came into the program, it was about mending my heart my mind, my heart, and my soul, and my mind, my head was very heavy, but my heart and my soul were very, very weary. It was an ACA that I got the confidence to be able to say no. It was an ACA in time that it took me a long time to learn how to tolerate, just tolerate the depth of feelings that I had. You know, ACA was truly a gift to myself. As I said, it was about connecting my head, my heart, and my soul. Recovery is clearly a process. It's not an all or nothing thing. I continue to have to work on some of these issues a lot more today than others of these issues. Some come much more readily to me in terms of the recovery than others. But in the process of having to continue to stay vigilant to some of these issues, that's been possible to do with an acceptance of the process and with a lot of compassion toward myself. I wanna say, you know, there was more violence in my life than in some people's lives, and for many years, and it didn't even start until my late 20s, and I began my recovery, well, in my mid-20s, that I would have night terrors. I, at times, would wake up screaming. To be very honest, the last time that happened was probably, I was probably in my 50s. I've um, uh, I'd had nightmares. Um, But as I said, you know, I had all this other recovery going on. And I just, I didn't chastise myself. I just knew that there was still work to be done. Sometimes when it's that extreme, the work isn't going to all be done in the 12-step program. Some people are going to benefit with the added data of therapy as well. I want to say, you know, as a child, it certainly wasn't safe for me to go out and play. One, there was too much stuff, too many things I had to protect inside the house, like my brother and my sister, or maybe even my mom. And the truth is I have a great child spirit. And today, I I can certainly enjoy playing. I've learned to let go. It's a lot easier for me today to tolerate other people's anger. I probably struggle with more with owning my own anger. Oh, gosh, having boundaries. You know, I'm very quick over the years to give up me, and particularly my time to please somebody else. And having boundaries means saying no. And, oh, my gosh, you know, if I say no to somebody, they're not going to like it. And in my mind, they're not going to like me. And, you know, what if I said no to Dottie? You know, Dottie asked me to, you know, can I say no to Dottie? Well, Dottie's got some recovery going on. And she may say, you know, Claudia's not available to us and she won't take it personally. But the truth is a lot of people are going to take somebody else's no very personally. And today what my recovery is about is I may disappoint some people as I need to set boundaries as part of my own self-care, but, uh, uh for me, that's self-love, sometimes saying no is really about saying yes to myself. And I remind myself of that. For other people, it's the, the opposite. They say uh, yes to too many things and they have to, I'm sorry, they say no to too many things. And they have to learn how to say yes. But I've had to learn how to say no to some things just to be able to practice my own self-care. And oh, that issue of asking for help. You remember those phone lists people would give me like, why would you give me this? Well, I started off learning to ask for help, even if I didn't think I needed it, just ask for help for the sake of the practice of it. So I'm going to start to bring this to a close and tell you a little bit about my current life. In my uh, late 20s, I I, I met another man about three years after my divorce from my first husband. We ended up being... uh, together for 40 years, married for 33 of those 40 years. And uh, he died about three and a half years ago. Um, It's been the hardest three and a half years of my life. And I will say that he was in recovery. He was in recovery, now called synonymous. And uh, had 44 years, in fact, when he passed. And I think it was recovery skills that allowed us to walk through. He died in a relatively short period of time, five weeks. And I think it was recovery skills that gave us the grace to walk through that. And I think it is recovery skills that absolutely um, have given me, I don't know if grace is the word, but the strength um, to walk through this process. Uh, It's hard losing uh, a partner that you're in love with all of those years. My father would die of his uh, disease, cirrhosis. Had to practice a lot of al with my sister. And I just really need to say, it doesn't matter who the relationship is with, my sister, my mother, my friends. Um, Mostly, if I address my relationship with myself, all the others are going to fall into place. If I really address the relationship with myself. And in essence, what I mean by that is I cannot abandon myself. I cannot emotionally abandon myself. I can't physically abandon myself. You know, today, I like my life. I do not live in fear I do not live in anguish. I do not live in the pain of the past, which allows me to be present with the pain of today. I don't go through life expecting the worst. I can laugh. I can take time for me. I can say no when I want to say no, though sometimes I struggle with that more than others. I see options. I don't see things from an all or nothing perspective. That's a big ACA issue. And heaven help if I make a mistake. I'm not real, I don't like the fact if I'm anything less than perfect, but I don't strive for perfectionism today. In fact, I give myself a lot of breaks. That, and, and I just wanna remind people, this has taken me a long time. This didn't come in the first one, two, five years. This has taken me a long time. But if I've learned self-compassion, self-acceptance early enough, I'm gonna be very patient with this time that it is taking. I feel very blessed in my spirituality, my own path. And want to say that recovery for me has given me a voice. And I think the greatest gift for me in ACA is the emotional, What what is offered me is the emotional safety it has given me to speak that voice. And I thank you for being a part of such a wonderful healing organization and wanting to listen to my story tonight. Now, I understand that there's usually a question and answer period at this time, and we knew we were going to have an awful lot of people um, on. So what we did is um, a few people came up with questions ahead of time, and I'm going to share a couple of those with you. And then we're going to turn it back over to Dottie, who's going to close the meeting um, with an ACA prayer. So the first one says, thinking about your whole story, of where you have been and where you are now, if you could only choose one piece of advice to leave with all the women in the room to be, what would that be? Oh boy. Um, It's hard to say one. The first thing that comes to mind is surround yourself with people who respect and treat you well. And I think another thing I want you to hang on to is to know that your strengths are far greater than your vulnerabilities. As one of the pioneers in the ACA movement, and so aware of the dysfunctional mantras, don't talk, don't trust, don't feel, how did you come to the realization not only that you were not alone, but that others would be open to receiving your message and doing the necessary work to heal their lives? I, I realized I wasn't alone as I sat there with my little groups of young children, adolescent children, and adult children, the partners, and the addicts. Collectively, there was it was, it was, it was too impactful for me. And I kept seeing all these issues repetitively. And, and uh, um, I knew this was something that was important. And I knew it was something that wasn't being said. And as I would talk about it with the people in my immediate life, as I said, um, then it was Jack who I ultimately married, who I had met who said, Claude, nobody knows what you're seeing. Nobody knows what you're thinking and you need to tell them this. Um, I felt, um, you know, I think it was a God thing for me. I I never tended to work in the field of addiction. Um, I never knew there was a field of addiction. Um, I thought I'd probably work with juvenile delinquents in residential treatment settings. And uh, so let me see if there's another part of this question. Um, And to do the necessary work, um, I knew, I knew that I wasn't alone, and I knew the resources were not there, and people did not have a language in which to talk about their experiences. They um, they needed a framework for what their healing was, and uh, I felt just passionate that nobody deserves. I think a driving force for, for me is nobody deserves with, to live with the fear and shame that we had lived with. I didn't deserve it. My brother didn't deserve it. My sister, my mother, my father didn't deserve it. And that is just as true for every other dysfunctional family. We do not deserve to live like that. And that's been a driving force for me uh, personally with ACA and in my work. And I'll just take one or two more here. Um, In your experience, what has been the greatest barrier to healing for adult children of alcoholics? Oh, there's a lot of barriers. I think one of our barriers is we feel as if we're betraying our family members. We feel as if we're saying we don't love them or that they're bad people. So I think that's one of our barriers. And I always say you're not betraying them. You're betraying the source of the dysfunction, but you're not betraying them. If They have the capacity to show you that they love you. And I believe that they do. They would want you to pursue your own recovery process. And I also think that Sometimes we think, well, other people have, have it worse than us, so somehow we don't deserve it. I also think we're very frightened of our, the depth of our pain. And I uh, also think that we don't connect. We end up in our 30s and our 40s, and we're depressed, and we're anxious, and we have problems with our kids and our parenting, and we're having problems in the workplace or in our relationships. We don't connect it to what happened the first 20 years of our life somehow we need to get some information that helps us follow the dots so sometimes we just don't even connect our life problems today to those early years but the not blaming our parents is a big one and then i just want to really conclude by saying um and the question is is you know Sometimes I don't want to talk because my story isn't as bad as somebody else's story. I hear that a lot over the years. And I just want to say, do not negate your, your reality and your truth and your losses are yours and they're important to you and they shouldn't be negated. The truth is there's always somebody with a more horrific horror story. I mean, I've been a therapist for over 40 years now and there is always somebody with a more horrific horror story and you are as important as they are. And so don't negate your loss. And some people will say, you know, I didn't have that blatant dysfunction. Claudia's got the story, you know, of sexual fear and a father who's violent, et cetera. And maybe you didn't have that. Sometimes it's not what does happen that creates our pain in our life. Sometimes it's what didn't happen. What didn't you get that you needed as a child? And that's where you begin to pay attention to what it means when we talk about emotional abandonment, when it's not okay to have needs, when it's not okay to make a mistake, when it's not okay to have your voice. So that can happen for a variety of reasons. It doesn't have to be as blatant as my story, but don't negate your losses because you think somebody else has a more so called powerful story. Your story is yours. And as I began Every one of our stories is important. It needs to be honored and acknowledged. And that's where a lot of our recovery uh, will just certainly begin. Thank you again. Let me go ahead and turn this over to Dottie and ask you to go ahead and close this out.